0: Well, Good morning, God's people, brothers and sisters in Christ. What a blessing to be with you all, and Merry Christmas to you and your families. I pray that this is a time filled with adoration of Christ and filled with joy. Uh, not just a, another day, not just a, a secular holiday, one that many around us are celebrating without knowing what it is that we are worshiping who it is we are worshiping and what it is we are celebrating. It is a blessing to be here on Christmas Eve. And I think a service like this, so close to Christmas, has the effect of kind of stopping us in our tracks. Now We're moving along, as I talked about at the beginning of the sermon last week. We're moving along, we're busy. Uh, maybe not everyone, uh, but many of us are quite busy uh, and a service like this on the day before Christmas, so on Christmas Eve, has a way of sort of stopping us and situating us in God's truth. It recalibrates us and reminds us why we're even celebrating this time of year. You know, the truth is that we can forget. You think, well, of course we can't forget. I mean, we're Christians. We don't forget what Christmas is about. We don't forget what we're celebrating, but the truth is that we can forget functionally. We can forget practically. Uh, Where in the back of our minds, on the back burner, we know it's about Jesus. We know that it is a time of worship. We know that Christmas is all about Christ. But on the front burner, in lived out experience, it really is just the same as everyone Around us, And let me submit to you, our children are paying attention. And they're not just paying attention to uh, the things we say. They're paying attention to the things we do. They're paying attention to the proportions and the priorities. They're paying attention to what, for us, Christmas is really about. And so much of how we teach our children is by example. Uh, We can say all of the right things. We can give all the Sunday school answers and tell them over and over again that Christmas is about Jesus. And then we can go and just undermine all of that in the way that we behave, in the way that we conduct ourselves and spend our time, and so on and so forth. So the truth is we can forget, and so I praise God that today we've been jerked out of all of that and put into this time to worship our King and to truly celebrate Christmas. For today, we shift our focus from the book of Exodus, where we've been for a while. We've been in the book of Exodus for almost two years, and you'll see these posters here on on the walls if you're visiting with us today. We've been going through, as a church, the book of Exodus, but we're stepping away from that today to look at the Gospel of John. So Exodus is the second book of the Bible in the Old Testament, and John is one of the four Gospels. So if you will go, go there with me in your Bibles to John, and today we're going to look at John chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, 14. One of the things that I love most about Christmas personally is that it is just so full of truth. It's so rich and so full of doctrine. It is dripping with doctrine. It is saturated with doctrine. And, And not just truths in general, but the most profound truths, the most precious truths of the universe, the most profound things in reality are celebrated at Christmas. And I was telling, I was talking with my mother in law. They visited uh, this, not this past week, but the week before. And I was telling her how much I wish that people really would pay attention to the words of the classic Christmas songs as they're being sung. I mean, it has amazed me. And the principal of our kids' school uh, referred to this uh, when they had their concert a couple of weeks ago. But it has amazed me. Uh, How sometimes you you will listen to versions of these classic Christmas songs. And the very best versions of those songs are done sometimes by unbelievers. People who have no regard for the Christ of Christmas, who do not live for the Christ of Christmas, do not know the Christ of Christmas. But because of God's common grace and because they're made in His image, they have the ability to project these truths with their voice in a way that no one else can. And yet it is simply coming off of the surface, not in the heart. Practicing those glorious words, hitting those notes just right, and yet they're not getting into the heart. And it just reminds us that our hearts are so cold, they are so hard, and so in need of God's grace. If it were not for God's electing grace, And his irresistible call on a human heart. None of us would be saved. None of us would be here this morning truly loving Jesus. None of us would be here with any desire for Christ to be exalted and glorified and made much of in the world. We would all be pursuing ourselves. We would all be pursuing the pleasures of the flesh and the course of this world Worshipping, though not even knowing it, the God of this world, Satan. That's where we would be but God. And so we just, as we're here this morning, we just celebrate the fact that God has saved us. He's changed us so that this means something to us. We care about Christmas as it is rightly understood at its heart. Christmas is the celebration of a great miracle. Christmas is the celebration of so much, but at the heart is a miracle. God becoming man. So listen, if you're going to get one thing right with your children, if we're going to get one thing clear, let's make it about that. God became man in the person of God. Jesus Christ, he entered our world to save us. Christmas is, yes, about hope and it is about peace and all of these words, hope and peace and joy. You know, you get those words on these posters and decorations and all of that, but Christmas isn't about hope and peace and joy. It's about Christ who is himself and who himself gives hope and peace And joy. It is about the miracle of his person when God became man. And as we've heard during Advent, it looks back to his birth and then to his cross, but it also points us forward to his second coming. We can't celebrate Christmas without considering the second coming of Christ, which has not happened yet. Like the Old Testament saints, Christians are anticipators. That is what one of the things that happens to us when we get saved, when we become believers, is we are born again, as Peter says, to a living hope. And that's one of the ways that you can discern that you're a true Christian, is you have been born again to a living hope. A hope that was absent before you came to Christ, and a hope that in Christ is very much present. Born again now to a living hope. We are anticipators like Isaiah, David, Daniel, Malachi, and so on and so forth. We are anticipators. Those who truly celebrate Christmas are those whose hearts are filled with hope for the future. Uh, the, as bad as the world gets, and all of the things that Stan was praying about earlier, which are going on in our world, and the, the, the what-ifs, and the, and the what will happen next year, and the projections for the future, all of that brings to the world this sense of despair. But for the Christian, our future is filled with hope. We are a people of hope, hope that is built on Christ Alone, The Christ of Christmas and the Christ who will return in all of his majestic glory. Just as they, the Old Testament saints, looked forward to his coming, we look forward to his coming back. In fact, this is how the Bible ends. You know, if you want to know what's important, it's, it's always good to look at the beginning and the end and then things that are repeated in the middle. And if we look at the very end of the Bible, this is what we find, the last two verses of the Bible, Revelation 20, verses 20 to 21. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. That's Christ. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's The response of the writer, that's the response of the Apostle John as he reflects on this message. Surely I am coming soon. The response is, come, Lord Jesus. So is that your anthem this morning from your heart as you celebrate Christmas this year? Come, Lord Jesus. Come back for us. Come back for your people. And then it ends, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. All come back, Lord Jesus." And it is in that hope that we have the grace of God to wake up every day, to do the things we have to do, to do the hard things, to persevere. It is, it is the grace that is found in that hope of Jesus coming back. The title for the sermon this morning is "The Son We Celebrate," part one. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend our time today looking at John 1.14. We're going to focus in on that one pivotal verse, that mountain peak verse in all of the Bible. We're going to focus on that. And we'll start with it this morning with part one, and then we'll finish it up tonight at the Christmas Eve service with part two. So you might be thinking, you know, I've got my Christmas Eve service in. I'm here this morning good to go. Let me just invite you to put a big red X on that way of thinking and come back tonight for part two. Come back tonight not just for part two of John 114, but for the singing and praising and praying and being together on Christmas Eve that will happen tonight. So no judgment on you if you can't make it uh, but I do want to invite you To come tonight, we will have our Christmas Eve service. By the way, we have a Christmas Eve service every year. It just happens today to be on Sunday. So we'll have two services today, this morning, and then the Christmas Eve service tonight. So if you would stand with me and know we are not just going to read uh, verse 14. Uh, I want to read the entire prologue. thought I was about to say the entire gospel. The entire... (laughs) prologue verses 1 to 18, John 1, 1 to 18. This is a unit within the gospel of John, and it's such a profound, we, we actually went through this prologue several years ago during Advent, I believe it was when we were in Madras Middle School. We went through the entire prologue, but today we're just going to focus on this one verse. I want to situate it though by reading it within its context verses 1 to 18. So this is the Word of God and and one of the most celebrated passages in the entire bible in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was in the beginning with god all things were made through him and but came to bear witness about the light. This is John the Baptist. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Profound irony. The world he made did not recognize him, did not know him. He came to his own, his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not dependent on us, not dependent on our lineage not dependent on being a descendant of Abraham, but dependent on the grace of God as he works in us to receive this Christ. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, He has made him known. You can go ahead and be seated. These verses are the reason why we're here this morning. That's Christmas. That's why we're here worshiping today. So let's pray and ask for God's grace, his blessing as we study his word together, as we seek to understand who he is, what he has done, and what that means for our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For giving us these holy scriptures. We thank you for these words. These precious words inspired by the Holy Spirit. As men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These God-breathed words that are profitable. They are profitable for equipping us for every good work. We thank you that these words are life. And that the one who meditates on them, will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Lord, we recognize that these words make us wise unto salvation. And Lord, they rejoice the heart, and they are sweeter than honey and more precious than much fine gold. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be lifted up today in worship to see and savor this Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that all the the things that allure us, that occupy our attention and our affections, that they would pale in comparison to this Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us today to see him, as He is, and to delight in Him, and to desire truly, practically, in every sphere of life, to please Him, to walk with Him, to hope in Him. Lord, we pray that what we do here today would bring You glory, and that it would magnify Your Son, as Mary did, as she... Saying that Magnificat as she declared your praises, as she magnified the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. We praise you, God, that you are the glorious King and that you have established yourself in our hearts as the King. God, would we treat you as such? Would we bow before your majesty? Would we love your glory more than our own desires, more than our own comforts, more than our own ambitions and dreams and hopes in this life. Lord, we pray that you would be exalted today and that we would be edified. Lord, help us today. Grow us because we are here. Grow us through this time. Grow us through preaching and singing and praying and celebrating the Lord's Supper. Grow us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the great benefits of Christmas is that it raises our affections for the person of Christ. Uh, That is something that we need most. Of all the things we need, we need most that our affections for Christ be blazing hot. That we not grow Tired in our zeal, that our zeal remain hot. And what is our zeal? Our zeal is for the glory of Christ. It is affection for Christ, love for Christ. Do you love me? Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? It is the great call of the Christian life to love Christ. And we will not obey him if we do not delight in him. We won't obey him as our Lord if we do not have affections for him if we do not treasure and cherish him, it puts a massive spotlight on who Jesus is and why he came. Christmas reminds us that all of life is about this Christ. And as we read throughout the Bible, we realize how much we need reminders. We are a forgetful people. We need reminders. And it's one of the great benefits of celebrating Christmas is that this massive spotlight falls on this great and glorious Christ. So who is this son we celebrate? And that's going to be the title of the sermon this morning, the son we celebrate. So who is this son we celebrate? Well, John 1:14 helps us to look at him from three angles, and there's so much that could be said, but we'll get into it a little this morning. So from three angles, we see this son whom we celebrate. He is God with us, glory before us, and grace towards us. And so what we're going to do this morning is we'll look at the first two, God with us and glory before us. And then tonight, in a shorter sermon, we're going to look at that last point, grace towards us. So God with us, glory before us, and grace towards us. So, so let's look first at God us. With us. And for that, we're going to look at that very first part of verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. These are earthquake words, these are climactic, earth shaking, and in a sense, incomprehensible words. Uh, there is a sense in which these words can be and must be explained. And then there is a sense in which these words are utterly inexplicable, incomprehensible, absolutely beyond our ability to see and appreciate truly. And here's the joy that we have before us is that one day we will. One day we will be able to see and savor these truths for all that they mean perfectly In God's presence, however, it won't be in a moment in time. We will do that forever. We will have much to meditate upon. We will never get bored in heaven, ever. We will have eternity to see and appreciate the glory of these incomprehensible words. We are meant to read these words with utter astonishment. Struck down by wonder and awe, and yet lifted up with the most intense joy. All sorts of things are happening or should happen to us as we encounter these words. This is, of course, especially the case when we go back and read who this figure is. Who is this figure, the Word? Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And then verse 3, all things were made through him. And then verse 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. So you're, you've got your puzzle out on the table and you're putting it together. You're trying to understand insofar as we can understand, trying to comprehend insofar as we can. And you're putting the pieces together. So he is both God and with God. Well, we know that the Jews only worship one God. You're scratching your head, scratching your chin. He is both God and with God. He is the means of creation. All that was made was through him. This week I was looking at this freshly and just looked outside and just thought, wow, like every leaf, every bird, every speck of dirt made through Christ, made through the word, everything. There's nothing, and John makes that point emphatically. There's not one single thing that was made, and that includes invisible beings and what is visible, not one single entity that has been made that was not made through Him. He is the source of all life, and He is the light of the world. This is the second person of the Trinity. And when we say second person of the Trinity, that's not to demote him to a second place. It's simply to recognize this relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the second person of the Trinity. In the Bible, God reveals himself as three in one. Three in one. Many theologians throughout the history of the church have tried to explain this. And much of it has been helpful, and much of it has been unhelpful. It, It is, in the sense I said before, inexplicable, it is a great mystery. But it is one that we must seek to understand, one that we must seek to probe insofar as our probing and our thinking comes from Scripture and not from speculation or philosophy and the like. God reveals himself in this way. Our God, the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this God of the Bible is three in one. One being, one essence, one substance, but existing eternally in three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Son is here called the Word. That's another name for him. He is the Son and he is the Word. I want to give you a quote from John Calvin. I think he does a really good job of explaining why it is that this one is called the Word. How do, we, how do we understand this? He's the Word of God. He's the Son of God. He's the Word of God. What's going on there? He says this, I think he calls the Son of God the Word. By the way, he starts by saying, I think, I, I think I got this, right? Still, Blowing his mind, but I think I've got this. I think he calls the Son of God the Word simply because, first, he is the eternal wisdom and will of God. And secondly, because he is the express image of his purpose. For just as in men, speech is called the expression of the thoughts. You hear someone speaking, you're getting an expression, an audible expression, a manifestation of what's going on on the inside. So for just as in men, speech is called the expression of the thoughts. So it is not inappropriate to apply this to God and say that he expresses himself to us by his speech or word. So that's what's going on there. Let me give you another quote, which I think is helpful, from D.A. Carson, a well-known Bible commentator and a well-known commentator of the Gospel of John, he says this, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation, and the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own sun So I hope you caught that or at least some of it this language of the word goes back to some key places in the Old Testament. So I've tried to give you a, a definition of what's going on here. I've tried to kind of explain it basically. Now I want you to see it in the Bible. I want you to see it kind of playing out in Scripture so that you have something concrete to sort of hang this idea on, especially if this is foreign to you. Maybe you're, you're a kid in here this morning and you're thinking, okay, so I, I've heard about the Trinity and the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So there's he's called the word. The Son is called the word, what's going on there, how is that? Here are just some verses that help us to begin to wrap our mind around this title. Genesis 1, 1 begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we go to verse 3, where it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Okay, So God is the creator and God created by means of through his word. God said, let there be light. And By the way, in those opening verses, we also get the spirit. Isn't that amazing? That the Trinity, though disclosed in its fullness, insofar as we can comprehend it, it's not until the New Testament we see the Trinity in the very first verses of the Bible. We got this category God, this category spirit, and this category speaking. It's the rest of the Bible that will flesh this out. We get it in Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Look up in the stars tonight, and what you see was made by the word. What you see there, the glory and the beauty of the galaxies and of the planets that we can see at night and the sun and the moon, all of that was made by the word through the eternal word. Psalm 107 verse 20, he sent out his word and healed them. So God uh, creates by his word, he restores and sustains, remakes by his word. Proverbs 8, verses 29 to 30, there we get this language of wisdom being personified. And when we think about word, we also think of wisdom. Uh, these two are related, God's thought, God's, God's wisdom as the eternal God. And this is what it says in Proverbs 8 regarding God's wisdom. When he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command... When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him. God's wisdom. Like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. This language of being with God. And being his delight is like what we have here in John's prologue. It's like what we find here in the opening verses of the Gospel of John. Verse 1, the word was with God. And the preposition there is towards God. It's not just the, the, the imagery of just sort of being side by side. It is the imagery of being turned towards, turned in towards God. That God's word, God's wisdom is turned towards him in this intimate union. This relationship between God and his word or the father and his son. The word was with God. And in verse 18, we read this. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. So he is with God, he's at the Father's side, or in the bosom of the Father, as some have translated this. He's wisdom there with God, delighting with God, and he himself is God. But Christmas is not just about recognizing the second person of the Trinity, It is about the amazing truth that this person entered our world. So let's go back to where we started. We we see who he is and the amazement that we ought to have of who he is, that he is both God and with God, this amazing, mysterious distinction within God, and yet he is God himself through whom all things were made. And then we come to read that he has entered our world. As it says here in John 1:14, he became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. Let me say it again. Tomorrow morning, wise men, great. Shepherds, great. Talk about it all, but make sure that not one present is opened, that not one candle is lit without making clear this great truth, that God became man. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation of the Son of God. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. He took on our human nature. He became flesh. He added to His divine nature... A human nature. He did not change from divine to human. He did not exchange one for the other. But he joined the divine nature to the human nature in one person. And let me say this. Because you could read this and you could read. And the word became flesh. And you could say he left godness and he became humanness. He exchanged being God for being man. That never happened. He was always God. And he added to his divinity humanity. He was and is forever now the God-man. One of the things that's always struck me for years is that when the word did this, he did it forever forever because it can never be undone. It's not a temporary thing. He did not take on flesh for a season and then let go of his humanity, just do what he needed to do in the humanity and then set it aside on a shelf and say, woo, glad I'm done with that. That's not what happened. When he took on humanity, when the word became flesh, when God became man, he stayed that way. And he will forever be that way. How incredible, how endlessly, incomprehensibly gracious for him to leave that and become man. A profound mystery worthy of our awe and. Worship. And that's what we ought to be doing this Christmas, is being in a state of all, a state of worship at this God, this Word. But in addition to this language of becoming flesh, we are also told here that He dwelt among us, He tabernacled among us, He pitched His tent here in our world. That's the verb there is to pitch one's tent. It is meant to bring the mind immediately to the Exodus. It is meant to bring the mind immediately to what we've been reading in Exodus. What we've finished talking about recently and what we'll see again later as we come to the end of the book. God said to Moses in Exodus 25, 8, Let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Christ is God's sanctuary. Living, moving, moving. Breathing sanctuary of the living God. God with his people. That's what the Old Testament tabernacle was all about. God's dwelling place, God's presence. But when the enfleshed word comes on the scene in the New Testament, he is called Emmanuel. He is God with us in fulfillment of God's promise in Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And this infleshed word is with us to do what? What is, what is this infleshed word, Emmanuel, here to do? And the answer is he is here to save. He is here to save. The word becoming flesh is a salvation mission. That's exactly what it is. We cannot celebrate Christmas without looking at Easter. We can't celebrate Christmas at all. We can't truncate Christmas. He was on a salvation mission, and we know that because this one who is called Emmanuel is also called Yeshua, Jesus. Matthew 1.21, she will bear a son, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, what does it mean? It means the Lord's salvation, or the Lord saves. He is God with us as Savior. Not just there to behold, but there through whom we are born again. He came to save. And so how will the enfleshed word, Emmanuel, Jesus, how will this one save us? Matthew 20, verse 28. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. The only reason that any of us are saved this morning, the only reason any of us have righteousness before God's face, he looks at us and he sees righteousness instead of all the darkness of our sin. And the only reason that we have life within us and hope before us is because Jesus substituted himself for us at the cross. This Emmanuel, this Yeshua, went to the cross and died in our place. That truth is packed into the truth of Christmas. So let me just explore briefly as we finish this point, what are some implications of all of this for us? And I just want to give you three, three different implications for us as we reflect on this this Christmas and, and I think we could say that, since this is the core truth of Christmas, we could say that Christmas has at least these three implications. Christmas is enlightening, it is comforting, and it is challenging. It's all of those things. So let me just go through each of those. First, Christmas is enlightening. There are certain truths that we have to know to celebrate Christmas rightly. Robust worship follows from right belief. People, have, people who have no, Christians who say they have no time for theology are saying they have no time for worship. To say that we have no patience for right belief is to say we really have no regard for right worship. Our worship will be fueled by what we come to know, what we come to see about the living God. We have to understand him to know him and to exalt him and proclaim him. So Christmas is enlightening. You know, there's a reason that the first 300 years of the church were focused on ironing out who Christ was, who he is, his person. And for some of us who think, well, yeah, the Trinity, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But that's for like theologians and stuff, right? Maybe you checked out earlier when I was going through all of that. Maybe you just, you know, you just, you just like, okay, that's that theology stuff. Where are we going? You know, no, that is the bedrock of our lives. It is a matter of life and death. And why do I say it's a matter of life and death? For three centuries, Christians fought for these truths, to iron these truths out in the great creeds of the early church. And it is a matter of life and death because we know people who because of their false Christology are on their way to hell. It is no small thing to be a Mormon. It is no small thing to be a Jehovah's Witness. It is no small thing to pervert the truth of the Trinity and to throw out the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a matter of life and death forever. This is not merely for the theologians to work out in the halls of academia. This is for every Christian and every Christian parent and for every Christian child to, insofar as we are able, seek to know these truths and to know them well and to know them precisely and to know them joyfully. So, Christmas is enlightening for us, Christmas is also comforting. Christmas tells us we're not alone. You know, maybe you've never struggled with loneliness, but for those who have, they know the sorrow of it, the grief of it, the heaviness of it. Maybe the idea of loneliness just really doesn't mean anything to you because you never really have been lonely. Christmas is comforting because it tells us we are not alone. We are not hopelessly lost. Christ has united himself with us. He has lifted up our nature and he has died in our place. We are certainly not alone. And so listen, you may feel alone this Christmas, but in Christ, through Christ, you will never be alone, ever. He is the dearest friend. He is the sweetest Companion. He is gentle and gracious and kind, and there is no one who can compare to his precious company. We are not alone. The word has come. The incarnation led to the giving of the Spirit, and the giving of the Spirit is a guarantee that we will one day be with Him. So it's comforting. Through all life's trials, Christ's incarnation is comforting. It's enlightening, it's comforting. And finally, it's challenging. Now let me say this, Christmas should be uncomfortable. I don't mean uncomfortable because you got to make sure you get those last gifts before like two or three o'clock today <laughs> or whatever. And, and I don't mean it's uncomfortable because you're trying, just you got so much to do and it's stressful or whatever, Christmas should be uncomfortable because of what it calls us to. It calls us to something. Christmas pushes us out. It hurts. It hurts to celebrate Christmas. Why do I say that? Well, that's exactly what Paul says in Philippians 2. As he describes the incarnation of the Son of God. As he describes Him going from glory to the cross. And he tells his readers and he tells us to have the mind of Christ, have the same mind that is Christ's. As he went from glory to the cross to save us, what are we to do? Philippians 2, 3-4, to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And you might say, yeah, 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 that sounds good. Yeah, give it a shot. It's painful. That hurts. It hurts because in the flesh, we don't want to consider others more significant than ourselves. We don't want to put self back here and others up here. We want to put self in the front. It is painful to live this. So if you're doing this and it's easy, you're not doing it, right? If you're doing this in your own mind and it's easy, you're not actually doing it. This hurts. It hurt Christ. And it will hurt and cost us. Christmas is immensely challenging. So we see God with us. Secondly, we come to glory before us. Look at the second part of verse 14. So we've read already, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now we get these words, and we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father. Here we read that Christmas is also about revelation, it is about putting something on display, it is about disclosing truth, it is about showing, about God showing himself. We know from Exodus that God is focused on his own glory, his great name, his renown. We know that. We've seen that over and over again with the plagues. We saw it with how he dealt with Pharaoh. We see it with how he saved his people. Moses even prays into this reality after the golden calf, which we just looked at. Exodus 32, verse 12. He says to Yahweh, he says, Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out? To kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. In other words, Moses says, what will they say about you, God? Your name will be smeared in the dirt. Your reputation, your renown will be trampled by those Egyptians. The same Egyptians that you displayed your power for to glorify your name among. What will they say about you? Lord, glorious God. God does everything for his own glory. And That may sound strange to us. Uh, what? I mean, if we do stuff for our own glory, we know it's bad. Right? I mean, we know that because when we do it, we're convicted of that. And when we see other people doing it, we don't like it. When people do things for their own, and so that's why in our society, there's all these little fake, humble words that people say, because nobody likes that. Nobody likes it when someone else is about their own glory, and so there's all these little statements that you make to kind of, you know, as preamble for what you're going to say, and all these other things that are just these little trite things that you say in order to avoid the impression that you're glorifying yourself. We see it even in our culture because it's in us. It's innate in us to know that's not good. So when we read that God seeks his own glory, we kind of bristle. But here's the thing. What else would God seek? Your glory? No. His own glory. That's the only thing he could seek. It's the end of all things. God seeks his own glory Because, of course, God is not an idolater. If God sought anything else, that thing which he sought would be God. Do you understand that? That thing would be God, not him. So he must seek his own glory. And all of that glory-seeking culminates in the sending of his Son. It's a culmination. The incarnation of Christ at Christmas is a culmination of glory-expression. It's a culmination of this God who glorifies himself to the world. As word and son, Jesus Christ reveals the Father. John 14, 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus has disciples who've been with him all this time. They say, show us the Father, Jesus. We'll be happy if you do that. You've shown us a lot of stuff. We would like to see the Father now, please. Jesus looks at them perplexed and he says, have you not seen me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And this is precisely what we get in places like Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. If you look in the mirror, what you see is yourself. Sometimes you're not happy with that. Sometimes we're not happy with that, right? But we look in the mirror, we see the image of ourselves. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance. I love this verse. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. That's who he is. As we read here, Jesus is the one-of-a-kind Son of the Father. He alone is able to reveal Him, to make Him known. This is how we come to see and know God's glory. We come to take hold of God's glory through God's Son. And let me say this, this is the reason why the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and others, the Unitarians and others, this is the reason that their entire religion is empty is because in the middle of their shell of religion, there's no God's glory. Because the only way we come to have God's glory, and that's the whole thing, is through Christ. This Christ, this glorious Christ. Otherwise, the shell is absolutely empty. And this is the reason why Jesus said to the Pharisees, you do not seek the glory that comes from God, you seek the glory that comes from others. The religion of the Pharisees was an empty shell. It had no glory of God in the middle. It was just about self. And I'll assure you, as we are assured throughout Scripture, that all religion apart from Christ is about self. It is about exalting self, promoting self, reassuring self, and so on and so forth. All religion empty of Christ is empty, period. So as we read this about Jesus being God's glory before our eyes, I think this highlights the importance of our Bibles in two ways. And this is where we're going to end this morning so this is a great time to talk about Bible reading in 2024. Uh, you know, you might be a, a New Year's resolution person. You might not be. But let me just encourage you. This is a great time to resolve before the Lord. And by the way, that you know, signs and seasons and so forth, you know, we recognize that God operates with us in, in these ways. He, he condescends to us. In the, he knows our frame. So listen, this is a great time to say, I'm gonna commit myself to the word of God this coming year. And one of the ways you can, you can really uh, stamp that into your life is to say, and I'm not gonna wait till January 1st, I'm just gonna start this afternoon, right? I'm gonna start this afternoon. So I wanna look at two ways that this highlights the importance of our Bibles. So first, we see Jesus's glory As we read those who saw it with their own eyes. Let me say that again. We see Jesus' glory as we read those who saw it with their own eyes. When it says in verse 14, we have seen his glory, it's very easy for us to appropriate everything we read in the Bible too quickly, right? We just read it and say, yeah, we've seen Jesus' glory. Yes, but that's not what that's saying. That is, the disciples who were with Jesus saw his glory. They saw his glory on dirt roads. They saw his glory in the temple precincts. They saw his glory in synagogue. They saw his glory from house to house and on mountains and in fields and on the sea. They saw his glory at the tomb of Lazarus. They saw his glory on Golgotha. They saw his glory throughout his ministry. That's what that's about. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it. I mean, you just can't read this without the excitement. And we've seen it. And we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. We've seen him. He is glorious. We've seen him. When we read their words, we see Jesus' glory through their seeing. John 2:11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. There were eyeballs who saw. There were eyeballs that saw Jesus do that. There were eyeballs. Human eyes that saw Jesus walk on the sea, that saw him calm the storm, that saw days old dead Lazarus come forth. There were people who saw that and heard that. There were people who touched Jesus' arm, who hugged Jesus, who looked into Jesus' eyes, who ate with Jesus. And they wrote it down for us. We cannot think to see Jesus' glory without reading the glory seeing of these followers. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's almost like they're shaking us and saying, oh, you must believe we saw it. must believe we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven well we did we heard it for we were with him on the holy mountain When we read these words, we see this glory. We're not going to make it through the Christian life without these precious words. We need them every single day. We don't go a day without eating. We don't go several hours without eating. We go often without this spiritual food, this plate of glory. We need Lots of plates of glory to get through this life and not fall away and not crumble in sin and not pursue idols and not make a mess of our marriage and not ruin our time with our children. We need plates of glory every single day for every single year that we live. Second, as we see Jesus's glory. We become like Him. And we all with unveiled face, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, the call of Christmas is a call to take up and read. It is a call to see the glory of the Son of God and to be transformed into His glorious likeness. We will not become more like Christ without this word. This is God's means. He's not gonna drop sanctification in your lap. Maybe you're here this, this morning and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I just don't feel like I've grown very much and, you know, this year, last decade. I'm just the same place. I'm still doing the same old junk that I was doing back then. What in the world? Like, why, why am I not growing? I would submit to you that that sort of life is a life where these plates of Christ glory are not being served up regularly. We desperately need them. Listen, this is God's means. God doesn't save us and sanctify us without means. He uses means of grace. Sometimes we're so passive and we think God just sort of electrocutes us and then then we're just living off of that buzz all the way until the end. And that's it. That's passivity. That's not biblical Christianity. That's a misuse of God's grace. God in His grace graciously gives means and those means are what he uses to sustain us and grow us and strengthen us and equip us for every battle we will face in this life. Christmas is by nature transformative. To celebrate Christmas is not to worship from afar but it is to be united to the sun and to reflect his glory in the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sustain us by your word, and Lord, it is the means that you use to preserve us to the end. As we think about the perseverance of the saints, as we think about this great confidence that we have that. If we are truly Christians, that we will never fall away, that we will make it to our final destination. We have glory to look forward to. As Paul says in Romans 8, that all the way from this call, from this, from this predestination, all the way to glory, it is, it is sure. And God, we praise you for that. But Lord, we we ask that you would help us to take advantage of the means that you have put before us as your people, your means of preservation your means of perseverance. God, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the Scriptures. We thank you most for the glory of your Son, your beloved Son, your one and only Son, your one-of-a-kind Son with whom you are well-pleased. And we thank you that the glory of Christ shines bright in Scripture. Lord, I pray that we would not be glory-seekers apart from the Bible, but that we would find Christ in the pages of Scripture. Lord, would you help us and help us to truly worship you over the next few days, Lord. Help us to keep you at the center of everything we're doing and help us, Lord, not to be distracted from this wondrous miracle, this majestic reality that God became man. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name.